to set the stage for our first speaker, uh, John Sinclair. John is a colleague of mine now. He's a senior fellow at the School of International Development and Global Studies, and actually our paths crossed in an earlier incarnation when John was um, an advisor to the executive director of the Canadian Office of the World Bank at, the time, at a time that I, I was at the World Bank as well. So I'm very pleased that our paths have crossed again in the school at Ottawa, University of Ottawa. Um, John has a wealth of experience in the development field, and he's going to talk a lot about the um, emerging structure uh, embodied in the G20 and other uh, options for reforming the G7 slash G8 framework that has guided so much of international financial uh, policy in, in the last few decades. Thank you, Gordon. I'm going to try to pick up some of the elements of the debate that we, we heard last night, but more importantly, provide a bit of context to where we're, where we're at, because these are, you know, in my mind, very, very turbulent times. We don't have an easy answer. So I'm going to try and talk about a little bit of the context. How do we get to where we are? And then focus really on the question, which I suppose is part of the dual challenges that we're all talking about. How will international organizations, international political actors come together and can they indeed come together to change the way we run the world we all live in? And secondly, and that's where my, my second panelist, uh, my colleague, will talk about really how does that flow down into the, the major institutions that we have today and maybe some of the issues as to whether those institutions are continuing to be relevant. But let me get to my part of the story, which is the... Uh, where the, the global leadership, the people we look up to, uh, might, might play a part. I come from the same sort of position that Roy does. So today, we, we could well be at an important and very fundamental turning point. Um, we saw this tide which has been enveloping us for a number of years now, I mean, the last decade, essentially, of emerging economies. And that, in a sense, has created the, the conflux with the almost the tsunami tide that we saw of, uh, of the financial crisis, which swept over us literally in weeks almost. And uh, in that sense, it's the collision between those two big forces, which I think is framing the type of debate we're, we're now engaged on. I mean, after decades of, I suppose, relatively fat life, at least for those of us living in the West, you know, we're confronting a, a global economy which I suppose many uh, would still be talking about as being on life support. And we, we hear now glimmers of more optimistic news about you know, the recovery of the stock market and things like that. But the real economy, the economy in which people have jobs and work is still not functioning in almost any economy, at least in the, in the OECD D world. Though we're seeing some hopeful signs in actually those people who are supposed to not be able to be resilient, the developing world, to, to, to start to turn around their, their lives. But we certainly have a situation that a lot of sober observers in Washington and London, New York, even those sober observers here in Ottawa, are seeing, as Roy was perhaps suggesting, that capitalist, capitalism came crumbling down just as dramatically as the Berlin Wall. Uh, I think I'm not of the camp that thinks it actually did fall down, but I think I'm of the camp that would say those are issues which we really should now be thinking about very much more. So I want to focus this morning on how one element in that new framework, something called the G20, you know, might come to play a role in shaping that still ongoing recovery. And what's the likely evolution of that forum? And what can we do with it 
because there were a lot of criticisms of it yesterday, uh, yesterday evening, to make it more responsive to the realities of the, the agendas that, in a sense, those of us, and I come from that camp, obviously, I mean, that world, the world of uh, pe people spending their time working on development issues, that will engage those, those developing countries. Maybe it's not quite at the point of the unthinkable, but certainly we're in a, a major shift in the global power arena. So how do we get to where, where we're talking now? What, what, what was the G7 saga in a sense? I mean, it goes back to another great crisis, the crisis in uh, 1973. The crisis, not that it brought me, but it coincided with when I came, came to Canada, became a Canadian which was the energy crisis in, 1970, 19, in 1973, which was rooted not in misbehavior by bankers in New York, but by a, ultimately by a war in the Middle East. We still have wars in the Middle East, or certainly we have lots of tensions in the Middle East. And the discovery by a group of nations called the OPEC uh, Partnership that cartels can work, and it gave them political leverage. And we all thought the end of the world had come then as well, even though energy prices just moved up to what we would now decide as dirt cheap, uh, a dirt cheap resource. And it gave birth to a club, the G5. We did have a G5, in which a group of rather vulnerable feeding leaders of the Western world were saying, you know, what, what can we do? It was to be a cozy elite club, a club in which those presidents and prime ministers got together and privately debated in the comfort and quietness of a country resort the affairs of the world. This was still a bit of a hangover from Bretton Woods 1, where three or four major political leaders decided they would shape the world. This was a slightly larger group, but they were still trying to shape the world, irrespective of the interests of 90% of, the, of the, uh, the rest of the world. But that was the, the reality of that. Canada, we are in Canada now, so we're later invited to join that club. We, we, we sort of got a, an entry pass because the American side of the bench was a little thin, and so we had to add a, you know, another, another sort of North American in that group. And at the same time, we had Italy added. So we had a group of seven. And that group has persisted, in a sense, almost without change for about 30 years now. It's been around for a long time, but I think it's been around and it's got tired and weary and many serious observers, including some of the economic actors that are involved in it, have increasingly felt it was in need of a serious renewal, a revision of the way it functioned and its, its activities. Some people wrote down, and I remember reading in this there's a, there's a sort of very interesting website if you want to pick up all the background of this, run by the G20 group, which is based in, based in Toronto, that they they talk about this was supposed to be a full-strength global governance institution. Well, it was never even an institution. I mean, it was a group of people getting together, though it became rather like an institution because those meetings of half a dozen leaders became meetings of hundreds of people and a thousand press people attending them. And in fact, it has now become, you know, very much an over-rehearsed political theater. Uh, it had liberty content in recent times, except when there was a sort of crisis on it. It was a bit of a photo op. And if there was any process taking place, it was taking place in its subgroups. Groups of ministers of finance, ministers of de development also met. Ministers of agriculture of the G7 occasionally met. It was a very clumsy process, hardly functioning to have what one might call a, an engaged discussion. So its members, basically even themselves, wanted more substance and greater inclusiveness. And the breakthrough in that was actually a, a breakthrough which was, I don't say entirely the initiative, but certainly very substantially influenced by uh, Paul Martin when he was the finance minister. 
And this was really a reflection and a response to another crisis, the crisis and indeed the anger. We go back to the institutional challenges of what we do with these, these Bretton Woods institutions. A response to what was a flawed IMF-driven response to the, the Asian financial crisis in the late 90s. And to do that, they created a, a larger club, only a club of finance ministers who will get together and talk again, more frankly, but more completely and more inclusively, especially with a number of Asian actors around it, to talk about some of these issues of, of global development. It's interesting, we're talking about the Stiglitz Committee uh, as one of the inspiring ports of what we're talking about. Of course, I mean, my first encounter with Joe Stiglitz was when he was the chief economist with the World Bank when I was, when I was there, and he eventually got fired from the job for talking out of, out of turn you can talk out of turn even when the chief economist of the World Bank and upset the Americans by talking about uh, the mismanagement of that crisis in Asia by the, by the IMF. So maybe he got interested in these topics. I suppose he was interested in them already. I mean, just because of that rather traumatic experience even in his very busy and eminent life. Before I move to what I like to call the, the Mark II version of the, the G20, I wanted to highlight four drivers which are shaping the, uh, this new millennium. And to indict the G7, uh, only one of those, the first, was ever a serious focus for its, for its own deliberations. Those four drivers are globalization, climate change, democratization, and the world of the emerging economies. And let's deal first with globalization. In some ways, because it's part of the current or then current thinking about what were the major drivers in international, international economic management, it may be the most, uh, the most important of them all. Even though, for sure, as Roy very aptly pointed out, it is now, if not in total disarray, in very serious disarray. Its merit was became a core document for the World Bank and the IMF. And this is where we turn to the subject that was alluding to around conditionality. It was conceived of as an economic perspective centered on liberalization, privatization, deregulation. But now it's become almost a political statement as well. Thou shalt be like this if you want to be a good political, have a, a well-governed society. And we talk more about bringing that same spirit into the world of, of multilateral institutions and multilateralism, the role of the World Trade Organization, intellectual property rights, all of these different factors. So what was in theory a voluntary process, one that emerged naturally as the optimum solution from the laws of market forces, became a dogma which came into disrepute, very serious disrepute in the 90s, I suppose, maybe even earlier than that, because of its aggressive, undifferentiated application. And the undifferentiated aspect of that is very, very critical. It's not the aggressiveness was what I suppose made people feel, feel a lot of pain in the third world, but it was also that it was undifferentiated. It was not that the ideas were totally false and, and alien to the real world, but it was the, the application of some strict book, some book of rules. And in fact, that book of rules, as we all know, was called the Washington Consensus, or it became known as the Washington Consensus. It was a little checklist for people in the World Bank and the IMF who are designing structural adjustment programs, which regularly fell apart or failed to be implemented effectively because they confronted something else, which is called reality. Reality meaning the real politic of developing countries, which even when they were in deep financial troubles, had to deal with social realities, the social and political realities of their societies. I mean, it's Gordon's point about the national reality is something we can't, can't turn aside. Just because you're sitting in Washington with an international perspective which is all powerful, it doesn't mean you can change the realities of 
Chad or India or Bangladesh or wherever you're talking about. And as we're discovering now in other or forum, the Doha round, for example, developing countries at the margin are just not prepared to sacrifice their, their populations willy-nilly to agendas which are often driven by our own interests in looking after parts of our populations. I mean, the classic example of being around agricultural trade, where the problems are caused by EU and US, sometimes a bit of Canadian protectionism and massive subsidies, certainly from the EU and the US, to efficient dairy farmers or cotton growers or whatever they are. So you have this dynamic which is at play. Let me turn to another topic. I just wanted to skim through this quickly so we come back to this, you see the context of the, of the G20. Global climate, climate change. I mean, this in many senses, maybe the, the turning point, the central force which is going to shape a new type of economic relationships and development options for the world. For some, probably it's the existential issue at the globe, that operates at the global level. If we fail to respond, if we don't do something about this, we have fundamental disequilibrium which is catching up with us in five, ten, not five, 10, 15, 20 years. And certainly in the, in the course of the, the lifetime of many people around this room, it's going to be an issue which we will see the, all the physical manifestations of it. Crop failures are already happening throughout Sub-Saharan Sub Africa. My Bangladesh, which I work on a lot of the time, so which is why I will have the odd reference to it occasionally, you know, rising sea levels will cover one third of that country of 150 million people. That's not a, that's not a joke in reality. How many more of those boats that are gonna land in Victoria will be coming from Bangladesh in the, in the future in that, in that sense? And it's not merely a southern issue. The Netherlands also has this little problem being low-lying and might also drown. And California will become a real desert, not a, not a, a well-watered desert. A meaningful response to these threats, therefore, you know, is gonna be very, very critical to change perhaps the style in which we manage our whole economies. And in that sense, it may be that that crisis, not so much the financial crisis, will be the thing which in the end changes the way we run global politics and global economic relationships. I want to mention democratization. It's something we very often don't focus on because it's, you know, it's something we as Canadians or people in this room tend to see as natural and automatic. But there have been dramatic changes in that area which change the way even governments can, can choose to behave, the collapse of the Soviet Union. The, diminished number of military regimes in much of the developed, uh, the, well, the end of apartheid being a very dramatic example. And even, you know, when we move maybe a little way from Canadian norms, a China or an, or an Iran are subject to popular pressures. I mean, one of the arguments for why China had such an enormous adjustment framework, uh, a stimulus package in the last 12 months, is because it knew that, it, or it feared, that its population would explode against the loss of jobs losses of jobs because their growth rate dropped to five or six percent. And this reality is also now rebounding on some of those old democracies, uh, the new, the Middle East, the middle-sized, sorry, the middle-sized European countries. We were talking last night about the possibilities of real change, and one of the, the laggards, the pushbacks, are coming from the Belgians of this world, the, De the Denmarks of this world, where will their place be in this, this new world when they used to have a privileged status in the IMF or the World Bank? And they're gonna certainly try to preserve some of those old, old privileges in forums like the, the IMF or the World Bank or even in the G7 for some of them. But the rhetoric of, their rhetoric of de democratization hopefully can be turned back in their faces uh, because if not, we will not have a change and we will have a logjam. 
The emerging economies is the, the last leg of this sort of little uh, group that I'm talking about. And some, for some, they're the heroes. For some, they're the villains of the saga of change. They are the most successful part of a developing world that is certainly a lot less homogenous than we painted in the 1970s. And I think the absence of homogeneity in the third world is something we have to keep on reminding ourselves. They're certainly classified still as developing countries, but they're major actors in the world economy. They're larger and more important actors in the world economy than we Canadians are. Some of, some of these groups have been here for a long time. The OPEC countries I referred to, but most are newer countries who have learned to play the globalization game, and that may be their vulnerability as well. They become hyper-competitive in terms of, uh, as actors in the world, in exporting products, like the shirt I'm wearing, the sweaters that some people are wearing. I have five minutes left, okay. And a whole range of different actors are, are at play there. I want to just remind us of one thing, which I'm sure others will have to think. We have to remember there is a group in the third world which is very often forgotten. And those people are still going to be suffering. They're still going to be disconnected from the world economy in, terms, in most terms. We call them sometimes the fragile states now. And they've been trapped, and they are trapped, in a vicious cycle of poverty, internal conflict, and flawed and failed governance. Paul Collier's bottom billion. We worry about them maybe for their own sakes, but we also worry them selfishly, maybe, for harboring the real risk of them being the incubators of global terrorism, the thing that, in a sense, is another political driver. So we've got that context, and we have now the emergence of what I'm calling Mark II. Forgive the long contextual uh, sidetrack, but it's important to understand where it came from. Mark II was assembled in an awful hurry a year ago. The world urgently needed a new coping mechanism, and it seized on the old Mark I G20, but elevated it to the heads of government forum. George Bush, already a, a lame duck, was persuaded in November of 2008 to host a first summit in Washington, which was a hurried and rather inconclusive affair. There was a more sober event in London, and then we've just had the Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsburgh summit. But I don't want to, I forgive myself, for, for, to focus on the immediate economic agenda that's uh, that important though that is. I wanted to focus for us purposes today of my presentation on two issues, the membership and the ambiguous legitimacy of, the, of, the, of this institution. So what, what might it mean for us all? It's going to face many challenges. These are troubling times, both economically and environmentally. And these two issues are now getting closely inter intertwined. So to deal with just economics in a forum like the G20 seems to me inappropriate. But these challenges are also triggering a new openness in world leaders to this restructuring. The resistance is still there. Obama is distracted by his health agenda and other political issues. And certainly there are those in the G7 and, and the Europeans who want to hold on to their old, old privileges. The question then is, will the new members of that group China, India, Brazil, want to work with it to see it as a vehicle for change, for change in the way the world is happening? Or are they actually just hoping to join their own version of a new club, just to get themselves on the inside track of a world which is not yet inclusive enough? So we have that possibility, in a sense, of a conflictual reality around the way the, uh, the G20 may, may function. That may be a cause 
of illegitimacy for this vehicle that we're now trying to at least argue it has some new, leg new legitimacy. Let me talk a little bit about those two things, the mandate of this institution and its membership. For now, we're seeing the old G7 trying to box in and this enhanced institution. But I suspect that's a rearguard op operation. I hope it's a rearguard operation. Um, if you just have to look at the realities in the political terms, three of those bricks that we're talking about are actually nuclear powers. And Obama has rejected unipolarity. So in some senses, this is a backdoor response to pleas for a, a new United Nations Security Council. Sooner or later, the G20 mandate will therefore, to my mind, have to be expanded, not from the narrow economic agenda which we're allowing it, we're talking about for next year, but to deal with issues around global politics, issues around security and human rights, and for sure, the survivalist agenda of global warming. But the question is whether the style will also change. Will the policies become more collegial and more flexible, more adapted to country circumstances? And to pr practice that, I suspect, the G20, although it's a bigger group, will have to have a very lean working style. If the G7 was accused of being sleepy and unfocused, the G20 is going to have to resist the same fate. It's going to be more vulnerable to internal divisions, partly just through simple clumsiness. And it also has to watch about policy capture, in a sense, by the old G7. So selectivity is going to be a very, very important issue about the way it, the way it operates. It's going to have to practice triage. It's going to have to move. And that may mean that it's going to create some of the machinery that the G7 have, a whole sets of groups of subcommittees sub of its ministers. Or maybe it can find ways of moving it into more modernized and more effective things like the IMF uh, uh, committee. We've got the, that old-fashioned institution called the IM, OECD. Maybe that can be absorbed into this machinery. I mean, it's a bit strange to have one which talks about global economic policy and doesn't exclude the giants of India and China. I think it's a body that's going to have to function by consensus as a guiding rule. No vetoes. I mean, vetoes have been the nightmare in, uh, in many institutions, including in the, uh, the Security Council. But we're going to have to have a system with qualified uh, majorities. Maybe some of the same reforms that we're going to talk about in a few minutes for the Bretton Woods institutions. The Stiglitz Commission, which inspired this meeting, suggested a more inclusive arrangement, uh, a global economic council. It's much more universal in its approach. Maybe some of those elements can be put in place. But I'm not so sure, and this is an unfortunate sort of comment to make because I feel uncomfortable with it, that the proposed institutional home, the United Nations, has yet got a good enough track record for this sort of body to be actually legitimate and functional. Be legitimate in a technical sense, but it will not be functional in terms of where it operates. The membership of this entity is the other sort of variable I wanted to talk a little bit about. It's fluid. It's stabilizing slowly. There is, if you look time, if you look down the, the list of people invited to the last meetings, they tend to be a group of friends of the, the, the host of the day. But the fear is, I suppose, that it will be just become an expanded, immutable global elite. You have to find a mechanism to deny that reality, I would like to argue, especially if the newcomers simply just uh, become part of that. One tactic in other form is to have mandatory rotation in membership. The question for us, for myself would be, can in a sense you have some G20 seats which are blocked for regional constituencies, picking up on the uh, approach that exists in the, uh, the IFIs with some sort of election, 
perhaps parrying the style that we may have in a modern United Nations Security Council on a three-year cycle? Can we even think of a situation where the Europeans will not have five seats, the numbers of whatever numbers of people they, they decide to have, but one seat for a semi-permanent presidency? They're about to elect a first permanent president. And how do we bring in what I mentioned a little earlier, a focus, a place for the very poorest? Could there be one reserved seat especially for the low-income and fragile states? They won't be the dominant voice in that room, but at least they will be in that room to make people feel guilty if they move too far away from being global, conscious of the global, the global reality. There's a big issue around proliferation, not of nuclear weapons, but of global institutions. And I think, you know, even when we talk today, I think we're going to find that's, that's a continuing problem. Will the T20 become part of that proliferation? Can it act as a way of consolidating and changing some of those things? Do we need, when we talk about proliferation, and provocative though it may sound, uh, you know, the heads of the IMF, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, and the EU all to be present at this meeting? A lot of change is possible. And where do we Canadians fit into this picture? And this is just my, my, my last couple of comments. This is all a very rapidly changing world. I see I've got zero time for it. <laughs> but, it's, but it's for the last 40 years, we've been a privileged insider in this, in this process. But from now on, we and some of the Europeans are going to have to function in a much more competitive environment. To survive, we're going to have to be a lot more strong in our ideas and imaginative as a player. We're not going to be able to play the G7 card any longer. We're going to have to build different relationships. Perhaps the relationships which come from the diversity of our own diaspora and our past relationships. We've got the resources to be an important actor in that world, but we also need to have the change to revert to the style which makes us an effective actor, prepared to fix things. We have the great opportunity, my last sentence. <laughs> we have the great opportunity because by chance, it is a lottery, you know, or not a lottery, a rotation. We're going to chair the next meeting, this strange hybrid of the G7 and G G20, which is to be held in Masoka. And so I think if we go there with a bold, imaginative posture, try to change it. And something I wrote in the papers recently, I said, well, why don't we invite Brazil to be the co-chair, not, not as it ends up uh, South Korea, and not see, be seen, as we are to some extent, as holding Monto in an old, dying regime. Thank you.